0: This is CliffCentral.com.
1: Up to the finishing line. Time, three minutes, 59.4 seconds, shattering the four-minute mile, the Everest of athletic achievement. A great reception for the young medical student who had cut two whole seconds off Gunda Haag's world record set up nine years ago.
0: Welcome to this week's edition of The Bounce Show. It is, well, it's a kind of a sad or slightly somber start to it. The late great Sir Roger Bannister passed away this past weekend, aged 88. So the intro there, of course, was him when he broke that amazing, that, that seemingly impossible four minute mile barrier. So we're going to touch on that. Uh, I, of course, in my in studio this week, I'm down at Fancourt. So I apologize that the sound quality isn't quite. What it could be from a studio podcast. But I'm down at Fancourt for the BMW Golf Cup International. I'm there for the world final. Now, I will talk about that a little bit later in the show. But essentially, it is kind of where you want to be in life right now. I'm playing the Montague, the Otaniqua, and of course, the Linked Golf Course at Fancourt. And there's, well, 46 different countries make up this whole tournament. Over 100,000 players from around the world participate from the initial stages right through to the world final. So if you follow me on Twitter at FollowTheBounce or on Instagram at just the bounce, you'll be able to keep up to speed with all the things that I'm doing. But today, the show will carry on. Uh, we've got lots of rugby, we've got lots of cricket, and of course, the whole Roger Bannister sort of story. Now, it's a story that's always been quite close to my heart, um, you know... When it comes to doing content, I, I try as hard as I can to be really immersed in sports and really understand what goes into it. So a few years ago, I, uh, went through a stage where I was trying to actually run a four minute mile myself. So I thought, well, I've got quite a slender runner, slender runner's physique. Maybe I should give it a go and see how I, how I get on. So I trained really, really hard. A lot of time in, um, in those days, back in my sort of late twenties. And, uh, wow, I, I trained so hard. I got, I got into an incredible shape. Well, I was, I looked like a greyhound actually. It wasn't a very good time mm-hmm. in my life. But I eventually injured myself quite badly, training a little bit too hard. And, uh, well, in the whole process, I read up about Roger Bannister. I consumed whatever I could about his amazing story and the actual mile running, which back in the day was pretty much, well, I would say it's pretty bigger than, um, you know, where the 100-meter right now is in athletics. is like the pinnacle event. The mile back in the day was like the business. So I really want to share this story with you because it meant so much to me. A few years back, and I, a little bit of me is quite sad that Sir Roger has passed away. And look, I don't get too sentimental in sport. I mean, everyone dies. We're all getting old. You know, carry on, carry on. That's life, unfortunately. But Roger was just so much more than just an athlete. Uh, he went on to become the celebrated neurosurgeon. He actually was one of the sort of initial guys to really put a lot of work into how they test for steroids and doping in sport. And uh, he was just a—he was just an incredible human being. He really was. And his athletic story is something that, well, I think it'll be absolutely timeless. So I want to share some things with you today. We're going to start off with the actual—the actual, the actual four-minute mile—as we go back to that beautiful vintage commentary, and then I'll get into a bit of the backstory around him and his competitors.
1: Oxford running for three A's against the University. Roger Bannister limbers up for a planned attack on that four-minute mile, never before achieved by man. From the start, teammate Chris Brasher sets a grueling pace with Bannister hard on his heels and Chris Chatterway waiting to take over. Now, here comes Chatterway, followed by Bannister. Round they go, the three-quarter mile is reached in half a second over the planned schedule of three minutes. Could he do it now? Yes, lengthening his amazing stride. This was Bannister's answer. Watch his final 300-yard dash, first passing Chataway, then on, battling against unfavourable conditions, a crosswind and a sodden track. Up to the finishing line. Time, three minutes, 59.4 seconds, shattering the four-minute mile, the Everest of athletic achievement. A great reception for the young medical student who had cut two whole seconds off Gunda Haag's world record set up nine years ago.
2: I'm very glad to have done it in Oxford because this was the track on which I ran my first mile race in my life about seven years ago when I first came up to Oxford. The second is that throughout the winter I've been watching the newspapers seeing whether Landy would do it first or whether Santee would do it first in America. And I'm very glad that, that it has come from England in the end. And
0: I, I really wish that sports coventry went back to the way it was in those days. It sounds so cool. So Roger mentioned two names there, Wes Santi and and sorry, John Landy. Now these two guys, or the three of them together, they were the ones that were going to take over from the Swedes. So during the Second World War, the Swedes were the best at this. They were the best mile runners, but they couldn't get past that mythical four minute barrier. 401 was the time, that Gunter Haag. He was the guy who was sitting the sitting the blazing a trail there. But all three of these guys, Landy santee and banister they were so different so santee was a bit younger than the other two he was the american guy he was churning things up on the college circuit he was the big hope from america landy well he was this kind of strange reclusive australian who had a work ethic like no other he was kind of favored to be the guy who was going to be the first guy to break the barrier he was going closest to it he kept pushing consistently low times towards it and, well, he just seemed like he was more dedicated than the other ones. But Roger Bannister himself, well, he was a kind of like he was a well-spoken, well-to-do young lad. He was a medical student. Um, you know, he was just there was all this talent about him. You know, he went to the Olympics. Unfortunately, he only came fourth. And then he got to a stage in his career where he decided, look, I mean, I've got a very small window to do this. I'm sure it can be done. It's a mental thing rather than a physical thing. I just need to get the little components in place. And I'm pretty sure I can do this. So the amazing thing about this story, and this is why I believe you've got to read up on it and you've really got to kind of just take in whatever you can about this guy's story, is that he was kind of ahead of his time in that he was really, really smart about how he went about this stuff. So as you heard in that clip there about the actual race, he got together his running colleagues, the guys that he would train with. And he decided that if we cut it up into certain sort of checkpoints, we can get this done. So the guys were going to set the pace for him and then he was obviously going to lap it around towards the end and really just make the, make the time his own. But back in those days, there were so many variables that we kind of forget. Firstly, the shoes they ran in were dreadful. They were like these heavy, horrible sort of leathery kind of things with spikes that were kind of like... I mean, you know, they put them in. It was all very sort of... Um, very savage, really, how these guys put together the equipment. These long spikes were put in. They then had to be filed down. Once on, they were then run on a cinder track. Nothing like you see nowadays that gives the athletes so much support. These cinder tracks were dreadful. And, of course, if it rained. It became quite clogged up and quite heavy. Now, the race took place in Oxford, in England, where the weather is always dreadful. So... this is the real kicker about this track where this record was set it wasn't even flat there there was a I'm not making this up it wasn't even flat there was a little part of the track where it went through through a bit of a dip so you'd be running and suddenly you'd have to kind of acclimatize to a bit of a change in, in, in terrain but you know regardless all of this um bannister set aside some time amongst his studies he believed he could do it and if the weather conditions played along he would definitely be able to do it of course the weather never plays along In england it was a dreadful cold afternoon and the wind was whooping around the circuit but anyway not like they had a lot of time the guys had to get back to his exams other guys had to get back to their jobs this was the window to do it and off they went and he did it he got under the four minute barrier he collapsed into a heap into the people who were waiting on the line for him, but he was the first guy to do it. Santi couldn't do it in America. Landy, for all his efforts, he couldn't do it either. And it must have been so heartbreaking for those two guys to know that Roger was planning something and he actually got it done. So it was a huge time, you know, in the world, really, because people didn't really have a lot of hope back in those times. I mean, back in the 50s, it was still the Cold War. It wasn't a great time to be alive. It really wasn't. So when something like this happened, it was the biggest news in the world. It really was. This was exactly the same time that someone finally sort of uh, summited Everest as well. So there was this whole, like belief and like real good feelings around things that you know that that the the human race is is pushing forward uh you know banister just broke the four minute mile so it's so much more than just some sporting event this really was an iconic moment iconic sorry iconic moment in life and this is maybe why i'm so drawn to the story but it gets even better than that so landy of course once that was done he went and broke the four minute mile it became a, a very mental thing but there was one thing that had to be done before Bannister could retire and become a doctor. He had to race against Landy. For all this time, I mean, prior to this, Landy was in like this Spartan sort of running camp with some other Aussies. And like, it was pretty hardcore how he was going about his training in order to try to be the first. Whereas Bannister was far more measured in what he did. He was a lot more sort of, um, I wouldn't say relaxed, but I mean, it was definitely more sort of sedate than what Landy was doing. Santi of the stage was out of it because he was American. Um sorry, that sounds a bit harsh. He was American, so therefore he couldn't take he couldn't take part in the Empire Games. This is where I'm going with this. So the Empire Games was gonna be that big showdown between Landy and Bannister. Now of course the Empire Games was what the Commonwealth Games is now. Of course, Commonwealth Games will be taking place in Australia April 4th to April 15th. But the Empire Games was the business. It was like the big thing. When you think now, the Commonwealth Games is kind of like a watered-down version of the Olympics. Back in those times when the British Empire was like the strongest thing that there really is, um, you know, it, it the, the best of the best was going in there. You know, you didn't see a lot of African athletes given the chance to compete in those days. Uh, there was no people from Jamaica sprinting or anything like that. It was a very different kind of a, like, landscape. So, The Empire Games is where it's at, and this is where you pick up the story now when we go back and we chat sorry, through an interview which I found on the Commonwealth Games YouTube channel. uh, John Landy and Roger Bannister, the late, great Roger Bannister, their thoughts are then tapped into for how the second part of the story took place.
3: The story of how Roger Bannister first broke the four-minute mile has been an inspiration to many of us. However, this was just the appetizer what would become one of the most exciting races ever run, the Miracle Mile.
1: And then came the event for which the whole world was waiting.
3: I've travelled halfway across the world to Melbourne to meet John Landy and to talk to him about the great race.
2: Landy off to a fast start, number 300.
3: Can you take us back, it's been almost 60 years now, to Vancouver and tell us how you're feeling on the day?
4: Here were two people who had won this so supposedly impossible time, which is frankly nonsense, and they had to meet in the Commonwealth Games. I didn't have a coach. I had to sort of make up my mind how I was going to uh, run the race. And uh, I'd say when I walked into the stadium and saw all these people, 28,000 people, it was a bit daunting, but um, I was used to reasonably used to the competition and... Uh, I guess I, I, I was nervous.
2: Landy now in the lead. There's the champion miler of the world in the lead now. Landy of Australia. Leading at the end of the first lap. What time do you have? 58-1,
4: the first lap.
2: 58-1, Landy in the lead in
4: the first lap. I ran for the uh, first quarter mile and I was leading in about 58 seconds and I kept up the pace.
3: I've come to Oxford to meet the man who won the race, Sir Roger Bannister. Ah, Hello. welcome, Jasmine. Hello
5: come on, on in. Thank you. Oh, we'll just walk up
3: together. You said in your autobiography that your race with Landy was one of the most intense and exciting moments of your life. What made it so special? Well, I
5: had um, failed in the 1952 Helsinki Olympics I was a a favorite to win the gold medal, and I came fourth. And I was very disappointed with myself, the team were disappointed in me, and also the British public. Um, By then, it was getting difficult to combine sport and my medical studies, so I had the alternative of retiring, feeling dissatisfied, or going on for two more years, when there were the Commonwealth Games and um, also the chance perhaps to break the four-minute mile. So those were the reasons why 1954 became important to me and it was my last opportunity before having to retire.
2: Landy still in the lead. Roger Bannister second and pulling up. Decreasing the lead. In just a second, Royal will give us the time on the second lap. He's ahead of his world record time this far.
3: Was there any point during the race with Landy where you thought perhaps you're not going to catch him?
5: He was someone with greater stamina, uh, but on the other hand, I had a better finish. So I had to ensure that he took the lead and tried to
2: exhaust me. Landy's still in the lead, Bannister second. We may be seeing history in the making here this afternoon. In the Miracle Mile at Vancouver, British
4: Columbia... And I got a good gap between myself and Roger Bannister. And coming to the third lap, I continued on, but he started to catch up.
2: Be prepared for Bannister's famous burst of speed at the end of the fourth lap. We're now more than halfway through the third lap.
4: Coming down the back straight, the sun was in such a position that I could see my shadow and his shadow, and I started to inch ahead a little bit, which gave me some optimism and some people on the inside of the track yelled out, you know, you're going well. You see now,
2: the only two men in the world who have ever run the mile in less than four minutes.
4: It's a very risky strategy, but I wanted to do it that way, and I reckon I had a 50-50 chance of winning it, but it was high risk.
5: But I managed to get to his shoulder
4: near the end of the fourth lap. Coming round the final bend... I went through the 1,500 metres just slightly behind my world record, so I was really going pretty fast. But I realised that within another 20 metres or so that I couldn't hold the pace.
5: And then I managed to overtake him. At the time, he happened to look over his left shoulder.
2: Watch for the burst of speed from Bannister now.
5: So he couldn't see that I was overtaking him. And then when he looked back to the front, I was already ahead and had sufficient advantage, holding that advantage until the tape. Roger Bannister in the
2: lead. 90 seconds. Bannister the
3: winner, eh? here's Royal Bromstine in just a minute. You never mentioned that you were running with stitches in your foot from standing on a flashbulb.
4: Quite frankly, I didn't think about it at all until about 10 hours after the race. So that absolutely now affected all.
2: Now Bannister on his feet again, accepting congratulations, closing for pictures, but his officer of United Press down by taking them. Royal, what was the time you got? Four, three fifty-eight, an awful close to a world record it might be. They're hugging each other down there while they're checking the times. This might be a record, it's within a split second of it. The winner, number 329, Dr. Roger Gilbert Bannister of England. 58 and 8.10 seconds. A new British Empire and Commonwealth Games record. A new Canadian Open record. In second place, number 300, John Michael Landy of Australia.
3: There's been lots of races with exciting finishes and lots of world records broken. Why do you think this race caused such a stir?
4: It was a promoter's dream. It was like a world title fight. It attracted huge United States interest. We had many, many reporters who flew up from New York and elsewhere, United States to Vancouver to cover it. And so the background was quite different from any other race. And uh, it attracted attention beyond the normal people who would follow athletics.
5: Well, it caught the public imagination. The idea of four laps in a minute each and, and breaking that barrier... Um, which was, I thought, rather psychological than actual, um, was something which I think was inevitable would be building up for a long period of time.
0: So I encourage you to find whatever you can about Landy, Bannister, Santee. There's some great books around the whole 4-Minute Mile thing. Like I said, it was the biggest thing that led x at the time, and it really was such a massive world event. And it's... Yeah, it's, it, it's sad when, when people pass on. Um, but you know, to, to understand the legacy is, is quite something in history and what, what this race did, you know, what this milestone was and how the sport has gone on because milestones are there to be broken. Of course, there's only so much that can be done physically, uh, without doping, of course. So it's just a really great story and it's something that I, I got a great look great pleasure in researching and obviously reflecting on this week. And it really was such an important thing. And and so Roger Bannister, gone in the human form, but obviously never forgotten. The guy really was an absolute legend. So we must move on. There's also lots of rapier talk about this week. Um, Over the weekend, there was a whole host of super rapier fixtures. In the sevens, the Blitzbox, unfortunately, couldn't get it done again in Las Vegas. They went out in the semis this time around to Argentina. But uh, the Canadian sevens is to be looked forward to this weekend. But let's get into some Super Rugby, shall we? And of course, the Stormers, well, they've got on the road, and now they have less players to pick from.
6: And
5: so the Crusaders will come away with a bonus point. 45
2: 28 as the ball goes out over the dead ball line.
0: Yeah, predictably, a bit of a hammering from the Crusaders. Well, we all saw it coming, really. Uh, The thing about being a Stormers fan is that, well, you you can never have high hopes. I don't mean that in a cynical sense. It's just that, well, they go on the road. They're going to get hammered. They lose players. I mean, they already had the third-choice fly-off or maybe fourth-choice fly-off, however you want to look at it. And it it can't exactly get any better because now they're playing the Highlanders this weekend. But let me just run you through the fixtures here before we go into the log and talk about more about what was going on over the weekend the blues they lost to the chiefs 21 27 at home the reds versus the brambys was a dreadful boring usual aussie derby 18 10 reds winning that one eventually the sunwolves they took on the rebels and they lost that one 17 37 so i think we're going to see the same from the sunwolves this year they're going to be the whipping boys and maybe they might sneak a a win against a somewhat bored team crusaders 45 28 well, they were far too strong for the Stormers. Some soft tries towards the end, they inflated that. And to the Stormers' credit, I mean, I think they were 26 nil down for 20 minutes. So they're stuck in there. The Sharks, they drew with the Waratahs at home. That's going to be seen as a bit of a disappointment. The Sharks have a great team on paper, especially that back line. But opening week, they lost the Lions... And now they've drawn with the Waratahs. The Bulls, they beat, sorry, the Bulls, of course, they didn't beat. They lost to the Lions, 35-49. The Lions, again, everyone thinks they're going to kind of weaken or plateau. Well, they're looking as strong as ever. So, one thing that can be said for the Bulls, though, a much more encouraging performance so far in this in the tournament for them. They beat the Hurricanes. They looked right against the Lions in patches, but this Lions team is still bloody strong. And then the Hagawade, they hosted the Hurricanes, who are on this whirlwind tour of the world as they go play a few matches, they lost to the Hurricanes. So, the Hagawad lost to the Hurricanes 9-34. So, it is still early days, of course, but, you know, it's the usual teams that are already doing so well, and it is the Crusaders who look so dominant, and they look so dominant without so many of their, their senior top players. Like, they really are missing four or five absolute first choices, but they're still looking so good. So, if you look at the overall log right now, uh the South African teams obviously played three matches. And, uh, well, the Highlanders, they've only played one. So we can't look too much into the log right now because it's still early days. But the Lions are top of the pops there. They've played three. They've won three. They're on 14 points. And uh, the rest of the teams, well, they'll all catch up and all balance out. But who is going to be the team to watch? Well, I'm going to go with the same old, same old say what is a bit more exciting, though. It is the Six Nations. And this weekend, the Six Nations is back in action after the break last round. Last round. So Ireland will take on Scotland at quarter past four on Saturday. Uh, then on Friday, sorry, on Saturday, um, still Saturday, France versus England at quarter to seven. And then Sunday the 11th, that will be Wales versus Italy. Now, what do these matches really mean right now? Well, if you look at the log, Ireland currently on 14 points. They're at the top. They're unbeaten. England and Scotland have both lost a match, so they're on England on 9, Scotland on 8. Wales are on 6 points, France are also on 6 points, and Italy, well, they're just sort of keeping Georgia out for some reason. I don't know why they're in this tournament, they're always the bottom team. I mean, give Georgia a go, let them play a bit some playoff relegation matches. Come on, let's spice it up a little bit, Six Nations. So, Ireland-Scotland is going to be huge, it's going to be at the Aviva Stadium this Saturday, of course, Scotland just beat England, and that is a huge result for them because it was kind of expected they would be a lot better this this time round. but they lost the opener to Wales, and then they did very well against France, but now the win against England has announced them as real title contenders. England, well, they'll be away to France, so they'll be able to pick up a win there. That will then put them up the, the table points-wise. So Ireland versus Scotland, that is such a huge key match, it really is. Of course, next weekend will be the final run of fixtures, so Italy versus Scotland. So Scotland can just somehow even you, maybe you just get a draw um probably not good enough they need need to win everything from here on in of course but if they can just get four points against ireland scrap a win there then they've got italy away and that should be five points in the bag england will then take on ireland in the final round of fixtures so england expected to win this one this is going to go down to the wire it's going to be hugely exciting and then at the end there the final match will be wales versus france but the tournament should be sewn up by that stage So, all to play for in the Six Nations. And it's great to have the Six Nations more competitive nowadays. Of course, England have been so good. They've won the last two times. Ireland were pretty dominant prior to that. But come on, Scotland. Everyone is cheering for Scotland. I know I am. All neutrals will be cheering on Scotland. If they can somehow get a win this weekend, then next weekend's fixtures are going to be hugely exciting. Speaking of hugely exciting, the test match series between SA and Australia is, well, I mean, it started out terribly, but there was a real spark towards the end of that first test. So let's now talk some cricket. First, getting the thoughts of Graham Smith, because it's all about the sledging right now. We all know it's about David Warner, Quinton Kock. what was said, what's happening. And Graham Smith, well, he ums and ahs a lot, because you know he doesn't want to say anything overly controversial, but it's still interesting getting his thoughts around the whole incident and how we're going to go forward now in the Test Series.
6: Graham, unfortunately, we have to talk about stuff off the field. I'd say yesterday was a bit of an altercation in the players' rooms or outside the players' rooms. What's your take on it? What have you heard? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think yesterday was quite evident. Stump marks, there's quite a lot of personal stuff going on. Um, I wasn't surprised there was a reaction at some point. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, we shouldn't be uh, talking about this. Uh, you know, I think that stuff needs to be managed. I think the umpires need to manage it. Um, you know Australia have played good cricket, they've gone and won a, a test match and that's really what the focus should be. A lot of personal stuff has been said by both sides, when it does cross on like that, do you expect reactions like we've seen? Well I mean I, I mean, I haven't uh, got any information but I mean I just know what I heard on, on the mics yesterday and it's quite, uh, some of it was quite you know, close to the boundaries of, of what I think should be said uh, play the game hard, play the game competitively you know, um, you know I think any bit of banter or anything uh you know which is in the spirit of the game I think is good. I mean, I played the game hard myself it was it was part and parcel of, of how you do it and and like someone like Markham will feel really re, you know, a rewarding feeling today and you know, you've got a hundred in, in a really tough environment, but I think it's just certain boundaries that just don't it 's unnecessary to cross them you know it 's unnecessary to take it to places that that sometimes went and uh, obviously emotions spilled in and Reactions uh, are unfortunately what we're talking about today, instead of uh, the build-up to the cricket. But at the end of the day, it's uh, setting up nicely for, for for PE, isn't it? What needs to happen to stop this type of stuff happening? Well, I think it's it's a tough one because a lot of it is about managing individuals and uh, you know getting them under control, and also the individual himself really just you know knowing the responsibility he has to the game and and the way that he plays it. You know so. Obviously, umpires. I think umpires—the way they manage the situation out there, um, being aware—you um, know—I think is, is a crucial part. Of it. But when South Africa play Australia, you expect it to be hard. You expect it to be competitive. You know, that was the—that's the nature of how we play the game, of, of how we brought up But you know, I, I think it's the personal stuff that no one enjoys. You know, and it's—it really is just unnecessary. What are you expecting in the Cape Town? Oh, the, the Port Elizabeth Test now. <laughs> well, I'm hoping that like really good cricket competitive cricket um, hard cricket uh, and uh, we'll see some really good performances uh, In mean, particular, I think the South African team need to need to perform well and we want these four test matches a lot of cricket still to be played um, and uh, I think that they'll have a bit of bit between their teeth now I think the last two days would have helped them a lot even though they lost the test match the performances on day three and four I think were, were crucial for, for them to get something out of this test match uh, no one gave them a chance for 17 you know, no one really believed that they would be able to bat it out or, or going to win the game. But it's what they got out of those two days as, as performances which which hopefully can benefit them going into PE.
0: Yep, it will benefit them going into PE, no doubt about that. But I just wish these guys could tell the truth. I mean, like, we all know what happened. Okay, we all know what happened. Devin Warner's a prick. He was going on at Quinny de Coq. Quinny de Coq then said something about his wife being a bit of a slapper. We all know this happened, Graham. Why can't you say so? Ugh. Uh, it's what I hate about the media, and I guess this is what my, this is where I come in. I've got to be the person who's got to be able to amplify what's going on here. But it must be so cool to be in a position like Graham, where you actually get the stunt mic and you can hear word for word what's going on there. And if you just got an understanding about how these guys do let off a few things here and there, Adam Gilchrist was on Twitter talking about how it's disgraceful how Warner's been targeted, and you know it just doesn't look good for the game. And you know, obviously, he was taking Warner's side, and Smith very quickly got on there basically saying that you know the personal stuff was. Wasn't exactly just one way. There were some real horrible things being said, and Warner is no no um, no innocent party in this. So I mean, I spoke about it on the the morning show here on Cliff Central early in the week um, about what was said, and a lot's been written about it. But I think David Warner has just gone about this all wrong. Firstly. I think it was completely out of line how he has a go at Ed and Markram for running on de Villiers, And know, we saw the New Zealanders do this in the World Cup a few years back. The Aussies think this is fine. The Aussies think this is okay behavior, but it's a bit dick. So, I mean, you're not, know, you're not really covering yourself in glory with that outburst to start with. But then to go on with Kuni de Kock about, you know, asking him about his, his name and making fun about his name. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, de Cock, you sound like a penis, whatever. I, mean, I don't know the exact wording, but it was along those lines. The guy's going to have something that's going to come back at him. Now, he went about it all wrong, because firstly, why are you staging on such a basic level? It really is quite immature. Secondly, to react when someone then fights back is just childish. Don't try even come play this victim card. But the worst about all of this is that he made such a massive scene about it. Now everybody wants to know what was said. So now everybody's been researching it. If he had not made a big stink about Quinny de Cock saying something about his wife, and I'm not going to say it's right or wrong if things go, go that personal. All I'm saying is Quinny de Cock was definitely pushed in a position where he was saying it. But if Warner didn't make a big thing about this, none of us would have researched the whole thing. None of us would have found stories about her and Sonny Bill Williams having sex in the bathroom. None of us would have found all these different stories from years back that – She basically hooked up with a whole bunch of other sports stars around that time, and she clearly has a thing for sports stars. None of us would have had this whole thing, this this whole history that's now being put onto our, our, our social media feeds, but he made a big deal of it, and now it's become a big deal. If he was man enough to just take a bit of a sledge back and move on with things, he would never have any of his attention. Can you imagine when this guy comes out to bat at the Wanderers, or maybe the other grounds too, but the Wanderers in particular? I mean, it's pretty rough there. It really is. There's a reason why there's a tunnel from the change rooms to the pitch. The fans are going to go, and they're going to tear him a new one. There's going to be signs. There's going to be all kinds of things. And he's brought it on himself, and I really have no sympathy for him whatsoever. But let's get a little bit more about this incident. Uh, Cricket Australia has a great YouTube account. They really do. And they put together the stuff very nicely. And uh, here are the thoughts of Adam Markram. Uh, as Graham Smith touched on that little part that he spoke about there, he was saying that sledging is part of the game. And, you know, it's part of the challenge. No doubt Adam Markram would have really appreciated how difficult that century was to get. And it would have been really rewarding for him. So get the thoughts of Adam Markram. And then Tim Payne. Well, in true Australian style, he has his take on this whole uh, sledging spat uh, just to kind of give you some extra sort of uh, levels about the quality of these Australians Proteus Centurion Aidan Markram played down Australia Vice Captain David Warner's fiery reaction to the run out of AB de Villiers on day 4 in Durban
6: Obviously it's natural when you play against the, the Australians that there's a lot of, of chatter on the field um, something I certainly don't mind um, something that, that really keeps me in the game and keeps me going, keeps me motivated um, and it never really gets out of line either. Um, not a lot of swearing and, and things like that happen. Um, there are a few here and there, but it's not the end of the world. Um, and it's, I, I believe it's part of the game. It's how the game should be played nice and hard, and it makes uh, success that, that bit more rewarding as well.
0: Meanwhile, it appeared as though tempers continued to flare at the T-interval, with CCTV footage from the players' tunnel showing this exchange between Warner and South African Quentin de Kock. After play, wicketkeeper Tim Payne agreed with Markram's summation, insisting the on-field banter had remained above board. Uh, well, there wasn't too much aggression, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say. I think we, we spoke to Aidan
6: about running out you know, their best player and, and one of the best players in the world. So um, I think
0: you know, had someone had run Smithy out in our team, you, you'd cop a fair bit of a ribbing. There was nothing um, you know, aggressive or anything like that. It was just reminding of what he'd just done, trying to get him off his game the same um, as they do to us didn't work. you got to love that piece there by Tim Payne saying that if the protesters were to run out Smith, the, the guys would have given the exact same sort of verbals. No, no, mate. They wouldn't have. They would have just celebrated the, the, the wickets and they would have moved on. These guys, they start believing their own hype. It's, just, it's so funny. It's so petty. And of course, the Aussies were the guys who wanted the stump mics turned down at the start of the series because no doubt there's all the stuff and this is how they prepare for tests. They prepare dirt on people and they're always in the air about it. Now look, I think sledging's fine. I think carry on. But if they're gonna be little bitches about it and start acting like Warner did, well, then we're gonna become quite critical about the sledging. Which should be part of the game. Let's just say it should be part of the game. But well done to Ada Markram. What an incredible innings that was. We all knew this guy was gonna be special as he came into the Pro Tiers team, but there was so much expectation on him. After he, you know, he played against Bangladesh, he played against uh Zimbabwe, you know, he had some real easy sort of run-ins into this Proteas team. It got very tough for him against India, didn't face so well. And then of course he was given the captaincy in a diabolical, embarrassing ODI series where the Proteas were just absolutely humbled by the Indians. But it didn't scar him too much because to get 140 against this Aussie attack, it's a good Aussie attack. I mean, Mitchell uh uh mitchell marsh even uh is bowling all right and the rest of them well hazelwood Stark, uh lions pretty handy um who's the other guy anyway not not, not important um uh it's a name's also mitchell i'm forgetting this guy's name let probably edit this bit out Cummins, Pat Cummins, that's the guy. They got a really great bowling attack. Adam Markham did superbly well to get the the 100 that he did. And this dude looks like the future, he really does. And if the rest can just kind of get it together, what do you think? In that second innings, I mean, as Graham said earlier in that piece, they were never going to get to 417. No one gave them a chance. And they were 46 for 4, I think it was. But the fact that between AB, Fuff, Umbler, and Elgar, they scored all of 22 runs in their second innings, it's just not good enough. You know, where is Amla going to go from here? Michael Holding made a very good point that this is a guy who's relied on talent and a superb eye-hand coordination kind of approach to cricket. He's getting on now. He's in his 30s. He's definitely in the latter stage of his career. He doesn't have a technique like a Jacques Colors kind of technique that he can go back into. That's what made Colors so great. I know every conversation does end up being about how great Colors was, but the guy in tough times could always resort back to his technique and go back to his basics. Um, Umla's basics are pretty flashy. I mean, let's be honest. So that's when he came into this Proteus team. People said that with his high back lift and the fact he was moving around the crease a lot, he was susceptible to LBWs. And, um, you know, obviously he worked on his his timing. He worked on his technique, but he still hasn't got one of those textbook techniques that in tough times you can just resort back to. And I think it's a good feature. You know, it's a good feature that that Michael Holding has pointed out there. Superb commentator Holding. I really do enjoy the fact that he is down for the series and he is part of the super sport panel. So second test. There's this Friday in Port Elizabeth. Please, people of Port Elizabeth, let us not embarrass the test cricket world by not going to watch this match. I know you're all going to come out. and The band's going to be there. It's going to be a whole lot better. But we need some support behind the pro here. I reckon this whole um, – I said it on the on the morning show on Cliff Central. I reckon this whole spat with Warner and all this kind of stuff is definitely going to galvanize this team. It's exactly what this team needs right now to get sort of shaken out of this little funk that they found themselves in. And if the batsman can just come to the party, I know the bowlers will be good enough. And then this is game on in this series. The Aussies deserve to win this first test. The Proteas always play like crap at Durban anyway. Please can they stop getting test match cricket? Durban is a dreadful venue. It's just dreadful in every single way. The only the only positive that I can take from that test match is they've got great surveillance cameras. That is it. That is the only reason I could ever think about having another test match there. As you know, that is a really comical excuse. Try and find a positive. So the next test on Friday in Port Elizabeth. Then you must get tickets in the Houting area. 22nd of March, we'll see the Centurion test, the third test, and then the fourth and final test at the Wanderers in Johannesburg, starting from the 30th of April. It's the Easter weekend. Uh, don't bother going to Cape Town this year. There's no water. The coast isn't that great this time of year. Stay in Joburg. Go watch the test. Support our boys. We must really get behind these guys. If you if you hate the smug look on Mitchell Stark's face or just the look of David Warner's face, get on down there. Support our boys. Give them everything they need because this test series is alive and well. Proteas are going through a tough time, but this is going to be the big changer. That's pretty much it for this week. Like I said, I need to get back onto the golf course. I'm down at Fancourt this week and I'm going to have so much fun. So many, so many great stories to tell you for next week. I will be seeing Mr. Gary Player on Friday. I got a little interview set up with him. So if you are listening to this and you want to add, just um, you can tweet me some questions if you would want to throw it towards him. I can always take the best and sift through it and see if Gary wants to bite on a couple of topics. So just tweet me at follow the bounce. Otherwise, if you want to get more into the show, as I always say, my email address is open to you if you have any sort of topics or things you want me to discuss or potentially guests that you want me to feature going forward, ben at thebounce.co.za. It's been a really great week on the site itself. Uh, I put a, I put a blog post out this week. It was around mixed track uh, relay events. Now, someone sent me a, a, a video over Twitter, uh, Steve, I think it was. Now, I've never seen mixed athletics. I had no idea. I mean, last week, we had a really good go about the fact that women's sports and male sports, when it comes down to contact and physical prowess, they should never be in the same same sentence, let alone the same sort of field. And I still stand by that. I think it's absolute bollocks what that Australian politician was saying. But this mixed track event, you've got to see the blog post I put out about this. It is so interesting. Four by four hundred uh, meter relay two guys, two girls, how they structure the legs took completely up to them, but it's absolutely fascinating, and it's actually a really great level playing field. Obviously, the guys are going to run faster than the women, but how you structure in the team, because you've got two guys, two girls, the pros, the cons, it all balances it out, and it makes for some thrilling athletics. It really does. There's also the 4 by 100 meters. There's an example of that in the blog post as well. So go on to the bounce of CEO.za there and uh, go through those as well. Plus, if you miss anything else from the podcast in the morning show, you'll catch up there. And then on the YouTube channel, follow The Bounce. I think I had my first proper viral hit video. You know, I've been trying to put more effort into making these videos. And I, I put the CCTV footage with some commentary out of the Warner versus DeCock spat. And it's got thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of views. I do believe it's because most of India has started to watch my YouTube channel. But either way, it's a good video. Go check it out. And please, if you haven't subscribed yet, please do subscribe to the YouTube channel. There's some really good stuff that's finally making its way out there. The blog's up to episode five. You'll get episode six on Sunday. So, yeah, it's it's going well, I think. It's going better than I initially expected. And I will keep going from strength to strength with your support, of course. But that is it for the Bounce Show this week. I really hope you enjoyed the Roger Bannister feature. And I do, uh, I do highly recommend if you can find the, there's a movie about the four minute mile, anything you can find, documentaries, books, do read up on it. Just a really, really great story. And, uh, well, he will be missed. He was a great addition to the human race, was Roger, so Roger Bannister. And, uh, I just really hope many more athletes can follow in his footsteps of always pushing the barriers. And you know, taking these impossible sort of ceilings and breaking through them because exactly what the four minute mile going underneath the four minute mile taught us. That's it for me. I'm going to get back on the golf course. I will catch you next week back in studio. Follow me on Twitter at follow the bounce or on Instagram for the bounce, YouTube at follow the bounce as well. And I will catch you back next week. This is CliffCentral.com.